So despite what you might think, we live in a very hopeful society. I think we get overwhelmed with the nightly news and Twitter feeds and trolls on YouTube, if you're familiar, that it's hard to realize that humanity is innately more hopeful than we tend to realize on a day-to-day -day basis. We're constantly looking for the good, for progress and adaptation and improvement. And I think if you've seen the self-help section at Chapters, you know what I mean. This section is huge. So call me an optimist, but I think that even the most pessimistic, jaded person holds out hope somewhere. It might be for the future and a better career, or provision for family, or friendship, or even just the basic hope that our human race continues to exist. I think there's a lot of talk of global warming happening right now, and it can be easy to get overwhelmed with that. And so we think, wow, like, looking ahead two, three, four generations, like, are we going to be okay? And we hope that we will be. At least I do. Um, and so we all put our hope in something. And what I want to bring to you this morning is I think that, unfortunately, we put our hope into things that fail us, that let us down, and leave us hurt, broken, and confused. We have to be careful and wise in the things that we put our hope in. One of the biggest examples, I think, of misplaced hope is our hope in technology. I think we're very quick to put it on a pedestal and to champion it as the answer to all of our prayers and all of our problems. And most of us, I think, live with a low-grade expectation that technology will solve all of our problems. That we can just download an app in hopes that it will get us in shape, make us organized, or improve our diet. And if we're not careful, I think the phrase, there's an app for that, can be very damaging to our discipleship in Jesus. Am I right? I think so. This idea that by downloading an app, we can fix all of our character flaws and become a better person. So I'm not down on technology. In fact, I love technology. This, hence this right now. I'm using technology, and I think it can be useful, but it needs to be used appropriately, and there's dangers in thinking that it can solve all of our problems. That's just one example. There are, of course, more, many more. Uh, the classic three, three big ones, money, sex, and power. Um, I think we've... We've read this quote out here before, but it's just so good. And it's really good because it's, it's written or it's said by a guy who actually isn't a religious person at all. He's an atheist, yet he still, in his, uh, in his talk that's pretty famous now called Everybody Worships, David Foster Wallace, he says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your own intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. So welcome. I'm just here to encourage you this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're doing okay still. Hope you're with me. Seriously, 
I know this is a tad depressing and probably not the reason you came out this morning, but it's something we need to talk about because I think it's something we all know to be true on some level. That, you know, our best efforts, our best intentions, sometimes they aren't good enough. And sometimes they leave us empty and alone and wondering what the heck happened. But our intrinsic optimism forces us to see fate as more hopeful than we would be led to believe. That deep down, we're all good people. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it that dominates our lives? Are we really people whose hope is secure? Do we really live our lives well? With a confident hope, something that is guaranteed to deliver? Or do we have this lingering suspicion that maybe we've made a mistake? And maybe we've put our hope in the wrong thing? So is there anything in scripture that speaks to this problem? Anything at all in the way of Jesus that might offer a little bit of help, a little bit of hope this morning? Hope that is secure, that will deliver, that is more or less outside of ourselves and what we can do or accomplish. Well, as you might have guessed, since you are at church, since we have just sung some amazing songs about Jesus, of course there is. And that leads me to the big idea this morning which is literally, I just kind of copied Paul this morning. It's right out of the text. You're probably very familiar with this passage if you've been around church for any length of time, but it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if you want, open your Bibles, or most likely your phones, to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read verse 24 to 29, and we are in a series right now. On Colossians, we are working our way through the book week by week, and we will go all the way up to Easter. So those Bibles that Sarah mentioned, they might be still very helpful. Even though we're just a chapter in, there's still three more chapters to go. And I think, hey, if you're the note-taking, writing, writing down, pen to paper type, that might be for you. But I love working through books of the Bible like this. I like digging deep, engaging in a story, in a specific situation, and just really kind of taking it all in. I think there's a real value when we go through books like this because we will end up, undoubtedly, going through topics we might not want to or topics that we might forget or aren't that important that we would think. And I think today is one of those topics. Like, that is a great phrase. That is so beautiful and awesome and hopeful. Um, but as we're going to talk about later, I, I don't know that we really know what it means. So, with all that said, why don't we read this passage? Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? We believe that no matter what I say this morning, these are the most important words that you're going to hear because they are the inspired words of God. So, I will be reading from the NIV, and it will be on the screen. This is the word of God for you this morning. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Heavenly Father, would you be with us this morning? Would you lead our time? Would you lead my words? And would you lead our hearts as we seek to know you more? As we seek to look more like you? We are so grateful for your scriptures, for your words. May we handle them with care and with intentionality. We thank you for your good grace, and we thank you for Christ in us, the hope of glory. We lift this all in your holy name. Amen. You can have a seat, guys. Thank you. So there is a uniqueness to our relationship with Scripture, because we have to remember that there was an original audience in mind. We are going through a letter right now, Colossians, which was a specific letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, or not Corinth, ah, Colossae. And that church had specific problems and issues that it needed to deal with. And Paul was addressing them. And Moses did the same in the Old Testament with his letters to Israel, or his books to Israel, the Torah, and the prophets, the same thing. And so while we read through scripture, we have to keep that in the back of our minds. However, we also believe that there are theological principles and concepts that are still valid for us today, even 2,000 years later in a different place in the world and a different context with different things going on. We still believe that there is something for us in Scripture. And it is the writer of Hebrews who says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is why we gather to, when we gather together, we dive into scripture. This is why scripture is the basis of our meeting together. We look to these words as the inspired words of God, still alive, still active, still worth basing our lives around. And so with that in mind, we are going to hone in on that phrase, that big idea that Paul uses here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because I believe that if we don't understand this phrase, this, the rest of this passage won't matter. It will matter, but it will matter more once we understand this. Um, so the big idea, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can we, can we do something fun? Can we read that out together? Is that, is that something, are we Pentecostal enough that that's okay? <laughs> yeah? Okay, sweet. Christ in you, the hope of glory. One more time, for those who missed it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Dude, that was so good. That was amazing. Dude, uh, and dudettes, I don't know. Um, awesome, that was fantastic. It was a little, maybe a little weird for some of you, a little cultish, it's not, it's fine. We're just repeating things, and it's sometimes good to verbalize and you know, to wake up, maybe, if you didn't have your coffee yet. So, for those of you taking notes, let's just, let's just get into it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We just have three points this morning. We're going to divide this up. Christ, hope, and glory. Essentially, Christ in you, and then the hope, and then of glory. That is all we're going to do today. It's going to be fantastic. And on the other side is going to be soup and buns. So there we go. I'm just super excited for soup and buns, apparently. So first, we got Christ. 
obviously first, Christ. This, Christ in you, is a very, very powerful statement. And I think it is also one that is hard to grasp. It's hard to get a concrete understanding of what this idea of Christ in you means. I think it sounds really nice. I think we like to say that, Christ in me. Like, oh, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, he's totally with me, and he's just there, like, somewhere doing things and making me feel good. Um, but I don't know that we really understand fully what this means, enough that we can actually apply it to our lives. For Paul, it was the primary way that he referred to those who were followers of Jesus. This idea of Christ in you, of being in Christ, of being united with Christ, it just permeates Paul's writings. And so it's important that we understand this idea. It's so important that we're just going to look at the Greek a little bit here this morning. For those of you who are not awake yet, Greek. Um, So we got Christos with Christ, and and I'm going to do my best, Haimun. I'm not Greek, if you didn't know, but that's that's the best I got. And the the thing about this is we're going to focus on this because, as I mentioned, there was original and original audience, a Greek audience who understood Greek. And I think that this, looking at this particular word in the middle there, just a little preposition, n, is kind of the hinge point for this. And so we're going to focus in on that, and we're going to do so by looking at definitions. So with definitions, there are usually two ways of understanding words. There's the literal meaning, the literal definition of it, or the figurative definition of it. So... Let's just kind of step back a little bit. Let's use an English word to start, because we all know English better than Greek. So we're going to use the word ton. The literal definition of the word ton is a a unit of measurement. It it is equal to roughly 2,000 pounds. We're all familiar with that. You could also say, there's a figurative meaning, you could say, Joey ate a ton of hot dogs last year. And the reason you could say that is because Joey did eat a ton of hot dogs last year. This is Joey Chestnut, and he is actually the the hot dog eating champion. He's a professional eater. And get this, he ate 66 hot dogs and buns in just over 12 minutes, which is like disgusting, but also kind of beautiful. And you're like, how did a guy like that do that? I don't know. But did he actually eat 2,000 pounds of hot dogs? I hope not, because he would probably not be alive still. No, but you could still say he ate a ton of hot dogs last year. Similarly, in Greek, the word en has a literal definition. It means in, on, at, by, or with. Essentially all like proximity and relationship ideas. And there's a figurative meaning. It is the place within which something operates. So I like to think of it, the figurative meaning, as your internal operating system. It is the place in which you observe, process, and respond to the world. It is the place in which you observe, process, and respond to the world. And scripture talks about two operating systems, not in as modern a language, but they talk about, and specifically Paul talks about, the flesh and the spirit. In Galatians, Paul says it this way, so I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. So Christ in you then is effectively walking with the spirit. It is deciding to allow Christ in, to allow him to become your internal operating system, the place by which you observe, process, and respond to the world. It is to transform your default flesh-based operating system into something that day by day looks more and more like Jesus. It is how you observe, process, and respond to the world exactly how Jesus would if he were you. It's kind of the same idea as computers. I think we can make that leap. There's really two primary operating systems out there for computing. There's PC and there's Mac. These two systems could not be more different, but they have the same goal, computer processing. They are different in design, price, security, support, and choice. And which one you decide will depend on who you are and what you want. Similarly, the flesh and the spirit, I'm not going to say which one of those is <laughs> Mac, but you can just be the judge of that for yourself. The flesh and the spirit are two ways of operating. They're completely different with each other, completely at odds with each other. And we have to make sure that we are at least aware of which operating system we are running. We have to think through this. We have to know exactly where it will take us. And which one you choose will depend solely on who you are and what you want. Again, Paul in Galatians, just a few verses later, talks about what the outcome looks like. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So are you living by the Spirit? Are you keeping in step with the Spirit? Or are you allowing your fleshly desires to run rampant in your life? These are important things to consider because the choices we make today will define who we become tomorrow. It is why we read again in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The idea here is to transform your mind, your whole person, by not conforming to the world. It is adopting a new operating system and living to that system. It is rejecting the base desires of the flesh and walking in step with the spirit. And what happens? What happens then as you begin the long, slow obedience in transformation is that you start to understand God's will for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
So that's the figurative meaning of Christ in you. But let's remember, there's also a literal meaning. The literal meaning of en is in, on, at, by, or with. They all refer to proximity and relationship. We have to be with Christ. We cannot do this on our own. We have to be willing to spend time with him. We have to be, in this language, in, on, at, by, and with Jesus. And as we do that, he is in, on, at, by, and with us. This is how Jesus said it in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. For those who are in Christ, they have a 24-7, 365 connection to him through the Spirit. We have shifted our internal operating system from the flesh to the Spirit. And as we make that decision daily, we do so by living in proximity to Jesus. And this reality is that Christ in us becomes greater and in turn begins to shift and alter how we live. As we continue to allow Christ to do this operation's work and transform us, we are inspired and encouraged to spend more time with him. Okay, so I'm going to try and, and earn some major apprentice brownie points here. I'm going to quote Brad Strela. Yeah. So if you find this week or later on today, you happen to be in conversation with Brad, and he asks you, like, hey, how did the service go? Like, how did, you know, how did Nick do? Just feel free to lead with this, because that would be fine with me. I would love it. Thank you. I love it. Oh, man. In all seriousness, this is an amazing quote from last week. And I wanted to remind us about it and to really just, I don't think it pulls any punches on what it looks like to be a Christian. And I thought it was great in, uh, and as we're considering Christ in you. So here we go. To be a Christian is to say, because you, Christ, are the creator and sustainer of all things, and because in spite of all your power, you stepped into time and space and made peace by the blood of your cross, Jesus, I will give you supremacy over everything, full stop. I will not get in your way. There is no point in my life where I will point to you and say, Jesus, do not touch. That's what we're talking about this morning. And that leads us into hope. Point number two is hope. And the reason we need to talk about hope is because scripture means something very, very different than what we mean when we talk about hope. Typically, when we talk about hope, we, we talk about situations, we associate with situations that are doubtful. So, you could say that if the Canucks were down by two goals with under a minute left, you hope that they will win, but you kind of know they're not going to, because unless Elias Pedersen's playing, they're probably not going to, and it's very doubtful, but you still hope they will win. You hope someday they might even win a Stanley Cup, despite all evidence to the contrary. <laughs> That's our modern understanding of hope, and we're very familiar with that. 
you know, going to the, to the big screen, to the silver screen, we think of, of stories, of characters, of hope. Characters like Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter, Frodo, Katniss Everdeen, for all you Hunger Games fans. Pretty much any Marvel or DC character, and just any epic storyline. It's all to do with hope. It's all how one person, against all odds, overcomes this thing and brings hope to a greater body of people. And as great as these stories are, because they instill in us hope, they're not as good as what scripture has for us because biblical hope is so much different. It's so much better. Biblical hope is more this idea of expecting what is certain. That where we tend to apply doubt or hope to situations that are doubtful, scripture applies hope to situations that are guaranteed. So this dramatically shifts the meaning of this phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because if we have our modern understanding of hope, it's kind of this idea that like Christ in us is like the potentially, maybe, hopefully idea of glory, maybe, in the future. Whereas if we, if we dig into the biblical understanding of hope, it sounds more like this. It sounds more like Christ in you is the absolute, certain, confident expectation of glory. And John Piper tells us, gives us a hint at why this is. He says this, Biblical hope is never based on what is possible with man. Biblical hope looks away from man to the promise of God. And when it does, it becomes the full assurance of hope, the expectation of great things from God. How good is that? It looks away from anything we do, and it's rooted in what God does, which is way more secure. I feel way more confident saying that and saying, I hope in myself. But all this hope is leading to something, right? All this hope is leading to glory, which I believe is yet another word that we often sing about, we often talk about and say, but I don't know much, much more of an idea that we really have, that is concrete, that we can really sink our teeth into. And so I wanted to spend a bit of time here as well. Glory is this beautifully rich and relatively misunderstood term. And we got two words, two primary words that scripture uses when it talks about glory. In the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, it is the word kabod, which means weight or weightiness. And in the New Testament, it means doxa, which is in the Greek, and it means opinion, praise, honor, glory. The cool thing about doxa is you might recognize it from our word doxology which we typically use when we're talking about praise and worship, like singing the doxology. But quite literally, it is the study of glory. And we'll get into why that is so cool later. So God's glory, what, what is glory as it relates to God? Well, it is the presence of God in the fullness of his attributes in some place or everywhere. It is the presence of God in the fullness of his attributes in some place or everywhere. So it is the purest expression of his entire being. Glorification, as it relates to followers of Jesus then, is living in God's glory. It is the aim of it's what we're all doing this for. It is we want to spend life eternally with Jesus. That is glorification. It is to be in his presence and to live in that reality for eternity. So just imagine for a moment 
an existence where there is nothing barring you from completely experiencing the wholeness of God. Nothing. All of God's attributes, all at once, not holding anything back, is where sin, pride, and selfishness can never get in the way. It is when God is in his proper place as God and we are in our proper place as man. It is no striving, there is no jockeying for position, and there is no currying God's favor. It is complete and utter surrender to God and to his love for you. It is the fullest, fullest realization of what we all want, which is to be fully known and fully loved. To be fully known and fully loved. Living in God's glory is then perfection. It's maturity, and essentially it's heaven. Theologian Gordon Fee, in his very theologian-y way, I'm just making up words now, he explains our relationship to God's glory this way. And it is, it is pretty dense, so just like extra focus on this one, but I think that it's so good and it's said so well. As we behold the glory that is Christ's, he being the incarnate manifestation of the divine glory, we, by the Spirit, are being transformed into Christ's own image. Thus, for the believer, the glory that is ours is the direct result of being brought face to face with the glory of Christ himself by means of the Spirit. Being brought face to face with the glory of Christ himself by means of the Spirit. So there is a story in the Old <laughs> Testament about glory. It's back in the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Now, we don't fully have time to turn there. Feel free on your own time to go and read Exodus 33, verses 12 to 23. It is beautiful. There's a lot there. You could spend so much time there. It's so good. But let's, for our purposes today, let's just go through what we need to go through, which is looking at this conversation of Moses and God. And Moses, essentially, he wants to know what's going to distinguish Israel from all the other nations. That you know, they've just had the Ten Commandments, they've had the golden calf, and now they've recommitted back to God, and now they're looking at what is next, well, it's the promised land, and they want to know, and Moses especially wants to know, okay, what's going to be different about us? What, what are you going to do? And essentially, God says, I will give you my presence, which is fantastic. That is amazing. And so, then Moses doubles down, and he gives a big ask, and he asks God to show him his glory. And God responds with this in verse 19. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name. God's glory is twofold. It is all of God's goodness, and it is his name. His goodness, the best of the best, the cream of the crop of God's very person. And it is his name. Now, I think with a name, there's also something else that we've kind of lost in, in this transformation of time and space. We don't understand name the same way that they did. And you may know this, but back then, unlike now, names meant something. They were more than just what people called you. They were your identity. They were who you were. But we don't just tell anybody the core of our identity. 
We don't just bare our souls for anybody. You know, we might tell people our name. We might tell people what we do for work or our hobbies. But you don't just tell anyone your deepest desires and longings. You don't tell anyone your greatest fears. It would be weird if I did that right now. (laughs) Probably. And we know this to be true because let's just just go and rag on social media for a bit. All we have to do is look at our Facebook feed and our Instagram feed and know that the version of ourselves that we're comfortable telling absolutely anybody is a carefully curated one. It's one that emphasizes, overemphasizes the highs and underemphasizes the lows. So we have to get this, that when Moses wants to see God's glory, that God responds with goodness and intimacy. Goodness and intimacy. It is the fullness of God's character, no restrictions, full intimacy, fully knowing him. That's what awaits those who have Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, as we close, as we come to an end, as we try and see what to do with this now, the question is simple. What are you putting your hope in today? Is it Christ who will lead you to glory? Or is it something else leading you somewhere else? Even if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you've been at this a long time, it can be easy to adopt functional saviors. Things that we put our hope in that should be Jesus, that we've replaced and we've subbed Jesus out and we've put something else in his place. It can become so easy to do that. Are there functional saviors in your life? Cheap replacements for the real savior that is Jesus Christ. Again, the takeaway this morning is simple. Do you have Christ in you? Is he your hope and are you heading to glory? Or have you missed out and placed your hope in the wrong thing? Are you looking to the world and through the world of the lens of Jesus or the lens of the flesh? This is what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the same way, we only get to glory, to a complete and full existence in the fullness of God's presence if we put our hope in Jesus. If Christ is in us, meaning he is with us, meaning we spend time with him, meaning we sacrifice for him. Because we recognize who Christ is and what he is and that he is worth sacrificing for, think to any tangible, real relationship that you have in your life. And it is that way because at one point, both parties decided they were going to sacrifice something for the good of the relationship. Jesus sacrificed for you. He started that process. He came, he died, and he bled on a cross so that we might know the fullness of God. What are you going to sacrifice today? What is the Spirit calling out in you? So maybe this is hitting you a little, you're a little blindsided by this. Maybe you weren't at all ready for this. Maybe you're someone who just needs to pray through this right now. Would, I, would you allow me to encourage you to do that this week? If not, 
in, in your own time by yourself or with your own community group. Maybe take a few moments after the service, postpone soup and buns for five minutes and pray with some people here who would love to do so. Or maybe you're more of a type A kind of doer. You're just like, okay, yeah, this is sweet. Like, I get my, get this understanding. I want to, yeah, let's do this. Um, well, as we've been mentioning for the last few weeks, if you, if you, what does sacrificing look? It might look like getting up at 5.30 in the morning to come, make some food, and serve some people who cannot do so themselves. Maybe it's doing the hard thing, which is actually getting our hands dirty, whereas the easy thing could be to just write it off, just say, that's ah, not for me, that's someone else, or I got other things that I'm doing. Would you at least consider that? Maybe that's the way. Or maybe it's, it's also alpha. I mean, we've been mentioning that too. Maybe your, your sacrifice is, is coming and facilitating some discussion for some people who are just genuinely, generally wrestling with the thoughts of, of God and of why am I here? Or maybe it's making food for alpha or joining the prayer team, like whatever that looks like. There is something here that we can all sacrifice for. We can all put our, our kind of money where our mouth is. Or maybe you're new here, and this is the first time you've been to church, if not ever, maybe in a while. And you have a lot of thoughts probably right now, and so if you are, are wrestling with some things, if some things just aren't sitting with you and you have any questions, please, please come talk to me. I would love to talk with you and to potentially even pray with you. That's um, way better than just wrestling with these thoughts and just keeping them all bottled up. So, regardless of wherever we're at, I know that in a room this big with this many people, we all don't fall into three neat categories. It never works out that way. And so it's the hardest part about wrapping up a sermon is that, yeah, people are unique, people are different, people go through unique circumstances. And so wherever you're at, I trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And as we enter into one last song of worship, as we stand and sing one more song, would you press into that? I think it can be very easy in, um, in this setting, too, of like a theater and chairs, and this is very similar to like a rock band type thing. It, yeah, right now especially. Um, it can be very easy to just kind of walk out the doors and figure out lunch plans or whatever, but may I make a suggestion that it's worth the five minutes, the ten minutes of just like really doing the hard work now as you're in community, as you're walking with other people who are in the same position, who are probably just as much wrestling with that, ah, do I really get into it now? Like, I don't know. Like, if I sit here, like, I'm going to be in people's way when they're trying to leave. And Like, just put all of those thoughts aside. If people need to leave, they, they can totally leave. No guilt, no shame. If you have stuff to do, please go do them. Like, that's fine. But it's I want to encourage those of you who maybe put it off week, week in and week out, and, and I say, don't make the same mistake this week. Maybe press in and, and do so as we, as we sing this last song.